there. It's Callum Newman with another edition of the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. And we've got a really big show for you today. Um, I've got my old mate, Greg Canavan, coming on. He's going to tell us about what's going on in the energy markets around the world. Uh, reason being, some of the stock price moves uh, in the uranium sector and the coal sector and the oil sector are really starting to, to look pretty big. So I wanted to get Greg called, uh, called for that on a couple of fronts. So wanted to get him in uh, to talk about it and see if there's still life in the old dog yet. Um, so stay tuned for that. But before we do that, I want to tell you another little story that I've picked up on, again, to do with the, the overall property business cycle. So um, a good little indicator you can follow going out for the next five years, actually. It's not mine. I used to work with a guy called Phil Anderson, and he was uh, a real character and had done lots and lots of study on going back through history. And, and one of the business cycle indicators he uh, used to talk about and follow was something called the tall building indicator. And we did this. We originally started cycle trends and forecasts back in 2014 for Fat Tail. Uh, we did that into 2020, and now we're going to do it again. So the way uh, Phil used to teach me to look uh, through the cycle is through the property cycle, which effectively is the business cycle. So when, obviously, as an investor, you want to know how long that's going to go for and uh, when it might come to an end. So this is where the tall building indicator comes in. So according to the 18-year uh, uh, cycle theory that we talk about, cycles, trends, and forecasts, which uh, uh, Phil uh, pioneered as far as America is concerned, based off the work of Fred Harrison. Um, that should run to 2026. So I'm reading my paper and up comes this little story. Now, you can't see it there. Now, last week, I my assistant, uh, Belvedere, was supposed to put the story on the, on the show. I don't think he did. So if he doesn't do it this week, he'll be in big trouble. Uh, but this is called Atlas and Tower Approved as Dexas takes pay strike. So the Dexas part is not, not important. The Atlas and Tower. So if you don't know Atlason, that is run by two Aussie guys that are now multi-billionaires and their business is basically based in the US, but uh, I think both of them live out here anyway. They're buying up half of Sydney for their, for their housing needs, but they're going to build a tower. They wanted to build a tower for their stuff. Anyway, I'll just read you this little bit. This is from The Australian. So, quote, the precinct will house 25,000 jobs over 24 hectares with the Atlason headquarters alone accommodating 5,000 operational jobs in the world's tallest hybrid timber tower, unquote. Now, that's the important bit. It, Phil, you would used to say, you know, you're looking out for record tall buildings um, or, or record unique structures, if you like. So that jumped out of me. And then we go down a little bit on the page here. The Atlason Tower is expected to be finished by 2026. So, again, that date always jumps out of me. Uh, so we have one first little signal that the business cycle uh, overall will run uh, out to 2026. Now, the interesting part about that tall building effect is the fact that they're building it now tells us other things as well. It tells us that money and finance is available. Um, and Atlason as a company are obviously prepared to, to put that capital spending down on the assumption that their revenues, you know, will keep growing and they'll be successful. So that's a clue into their thinking as well. So if you ever see a tall building and around the date of 2026, reason being is that historically, uh, they usually, or as I say, historically in the past, open empty 
because usually by the time they're finished, uh, things are, have gone, started to slide. So a classic example of that is the Empire State Building in the US, which uh, was started in the 20s or approved in the 20s, and then by the time it opened, the Great Depression was going. Another one was the Burj Khalifa, which uh, I've been to the top of actually, uh, but it opened in 2008 or nine. I can't remember exactly now, but again, <laughs> Dubai effectively went broke by the time it was finished. Uh, that was quite an experience actually. It cost me like 150 bucks to go to the top of the thing. And I made the mistake of going in the daytime and you get up there and you're like, okay, well, so really high and all I can see is desert. So it wasn't that interesting. Um, anyway, I'll leave that with you. Check out the tall building effect. Now we're going to talk with Greg about what's going on in coal, uranium, and oil, and whether you can still make a buck from the stocks. Here he is. Earlier, I mentioned we'd be speaking with my maiden colleague, Greg Canavan, sorry, who's the uh, editor of Greg Canavan's investment advisory with Fat Tail Media. And I wanted, as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to have him on to talk about energy. Uh, so, Greg, welcome. G'day, Callum. Thanks for uh, inviting us on, mate. It's a pleasure. Uh, two two calls of yours recently really stick out for me. One was last year when you said to buy the banks, um, which was uh, a ripping decision, and your subscribers did really well in, out of that and can just now surf the dividend yield. Uh, then earlier in the year, you started to talk about the opportunity in coal. And as you know, this is a tricky topic these days, um, but in a way, it was an inspired move. And in, recently, we've seen coal prices go banana, bananas, I should say, in China. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in that market? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I wouldn't say I have any great insights as to as to what's going on there. Um, the idea behind each of those recommendations were simply. At the time, there was it was a it was a completely counter consensus sort of call. So, the banks just to go back to them briefly. I think that was sometime around September, uh, October last year. Um, you know, the Aussie economy was just coming out of the uh, the COVID crash and the the lockdowns and the shutdowns and all that sort of stuff. And looking at the valuations on the banks, they just looked very attractive. And if you took the view that in a couple of years' time. Uh, what we were going through at that point wasn't going to be sustainable, uh, then they were just out-and-out out buyers. And all you had to do at that time was just have a, a slightly longer view than six months. And, and you can tell in the pricing of these uh, banks that the market was very, very concerned about the near-term issues. And, of course, equity is priced on uh, long-term future cash flows, not just the next six months. So there was a really good buying opportunity that came out of that. Uh, also, I've got to say, I did take um, take some advice from your uh, wonderful service, Cycles, Trends and Forecasts, in knowing or having a very good chance that the property market was not going to collapse, right? So um, the biggest risk for banks is when they get their equity destroyed from falling land prices or falling housing market. Now, we at Fat Tail Investment Research were pretty comfortable that that wasn't going to be the case. And once again, that was definitely not the main call in the market at that time. There was a lot of concern that the housing market would be very badly affected uh, by the COVID shutdowns, all that sort of stuff. Um, I thought that risk wasn't really a big risk and, and therefore the banks looked, you know, exceptionally good long-term buying opportunities. So you fast forward a few months and a very similar thing was happening in the coal and, and the energy space. 
So, and even, you know, you can say, oh, look, it's a controversial decision to, to look at these investments. And, you know, I don't necessarily think it is. In in my view, you know, our job is to try and find the best investments for our subscribers and the, the investments that have got the most um, potential upside. I don't think people subscribe to us for moralistic uh, adv- advice on, um, you know, whether to recommend a certain stock or not. You know, people can make their own decisions whether they want to buy into something. And at the end of last year and at the start of this year, it was just quite obvious that the whole market had turned against these so-called old energy companies to the point where, um, again, the COVID crash had caused a big um, uh, short-term diminution in demand. Uh, But longer term, the lack of investment over the prior few years, um, in my view, was going to cause a longer term supply issue. So demand would come back, but supply wasn't going to come back uh, to, to meet that demand, which you know means higher prices. So it was purely just a, a look at the, the cyclicality of the market, um, seeing where prices were at the time and saying, look, in a couple of years' time, chances are prices are going to be a lot higher. And because of all this concern about or, or the trend towards ESG, which is the environmental, social and governance aspect of, of a lot of these companies, um, it's very difficult to get the investment decisions approved that uh, can respond to that demand in 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 um, terms of greater supply. So for me, once again, it was just a very um, counter cyclical um, investment idea. And uh, you know, I, I recommended Whitehaven Coal, and I think um, at the time I was around about a dollar fifty, something like that. And you know, that that that's done pretty well. Going into the the Chinese um, side of things. Um, you know, they put a ban on Australian coal, so they were trying to make up for that. Uh, and they did that before the COVID crash. I think that was in, in 2019 um, that that happened, or maybe 2020. I can't remember exact date. But they'd been trying to source supply from other areas. Um, and and when, when these economies opened back up, you know, the, the, the demand for coal and the demand for heating, the demand for energy, all that sort of stuff um, was just was just there and the, the, the supply response wasn't able to match it. So prices just went through the roof. You're seeing coal prices come back now, um, which, you know, makes a bit of sense because they almost went vertical over the past few months. But I think longer term, we're probably in a, a structurally strong um, uptrend for all forms of traditional energy prices, coal, um, oil and gas, that sort of stuff. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in that sector. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'd say this is a, an example where the individual investor can have an advantage over the fund managers, et cetera, because they were all dropping these just to meet those ESG mandates. Or I read a lot of their materials now and they all catering to this as part of their marketing. They say, we're ESG conscious. You can leave your money with us. You know, you don't have to feel bad about anything. It's all a kind of non-investment uh, reasons to, to clear these sort of out. So you, you get these uh, share prices that just got sort of smashed, but then, you sort of look at them and you go, well, they're still making lots of money. And it, it, as soon as, you know, the the prices started rising, well, you know, individually you can go, well, you know, it's a really great opportunity here and, and that's what you jumped on, did it really well. Well, the thing is, you know, you can, you can moralise about this sort of stuff, but like um, China stopped buying Australian coal, which is, okay, coal's, 
you know, um, you know, not not the cleanest form of energy. Everyone knows that. But then they go and have to buy um, Indonesian coal and South African coal and and, and other um, Russian coal, which burns even dirtier than Australia. So you can you can moralize about um, wanting to do the right thing, but the the reality is that many economies, especially developed economies, do rely on fossil fuels. And to deny those economies a cheap form of energy, because every economy runs on energy, right? If you don't have a cheap form of energy to run an economy, then you're going to sacrifice economic growth. You're going to sacrifice the living standards of people that are trying to sort of, you know, grow their per capita incomes, all that sort of stuff. So us in the West have got a very privileged position to sit back and say, well, you know, we we demand that, you know, countries cut back on uh, emissions, but, you know, we've already had our growth and, and the, these countries are sort of moving moving up the growth profile. So um, as I said before, like I don't think it's up to us to moralise around those sorts of things. If people choose not to invest in that sort of stuff, that's fine. Um, but, you know, my job is to try and pick investments that I think are going to, um, you know, go up the most and, and make people money. So that's what we try to do. In terms of cold, do you view that as a – obviously you could look to hold the banks, which you mentioned earlier, for – almost indefinitely for the moment, uh, do you put in your own mind like a time limit on how long you think the coal stocks can run for? Or uh, Look, I'd probably, I always sort of look at things with roughly a, a two-year time frame. Um, and as you know, I, I do rely on on the charts as well. If something is is trending in the right direction, then I think often it's just best to leave that up to the trend to tell you when, when it's time time to get out. I mean, if you look at some of those runs that the, the cyclic, cyclically sensitive coal companies have had, I remember doing the numbers on Whitehaven and, and from, from its low, I can't remember the specific dates, but from its low end, say 2015, 2016 to its high a couple of years later, it increased 1,500%. I mean, you know, it's just hugely leveraged to these to these coal prices. So, um, you know, do you want to take a two hundred percent gain and think that you've you've got the the most of that cyclical upswing, or do you want to buy in at a reasonable price and then just let that run and and let the market tell you when, when to get out? Now, whether that's yeah, a it, stop loss or what, I, I'm not quite sure. But I'll, you know, you assess it as the as, as the going, trend yeah. plays out. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it's incredibly profitable when the the prices are high. It's amazing. I, I still remember. Um, this is a bit of a diversion, but when we had our conference in 2016, we had a subscriber there up, up there in Queensland, and he was like, this was back before 2008, I think, but uh, he was like, he was British, and he was like, oh, coal was at 300 bucks a tonne, and it was, I made an obscene amount of money. <laughs> you know, they're just crazy profitable, like hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, I mean, if you think about I think the cost of production for some of these miners is, you know, around 70, 70 bucks, something like that. So when you're getting 300 um, and not that everyone's getting that, that there's sort of like, you know, peak prices and you've got to have the right coal quality to get all that stuff, but it just shows you then there's, you know, there's massive cash flows that are available to these companies that can uh, produce high quality coal uh, when the market's running hot. Well, let's talk a little bit about uranium because this is a story that kind of didn't work for you in the sense that you were hunting uh, a return to uranium back in about 2018. Uh, It didn't happen for you as such. But in the last six to 12 months, uranium stocks have gone bananas. Now, the interesting thing about this one, I think it's fair to say that the cash flows aren't there yet. This is more the market anticipating the return of uranium. Yeah. Where do you see that now? Like, obviously, the, the so-called easy gains of the, the upswing have come. Where do you, th- are you going to jump, look back into the story or? 
Oh, look, it's a, it's a really tricky one because, as you said, um, I recommended a number of stocks back in 2018 thinking that, you know, the, the worst of the bear market had, um, had, had been and, and the, the upside was, was quite substantial. And, you know, I, I can't remember if, you know, it's probably Warren Buffett or Munger that says, you know, the greatest quality of investor is patience and I didn't have enough of it to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to stick with it. Uh, I got stopped out of um, one of them, Bannerman Resources, for a loss. Uh, made um, decent double-digit gains on a couple of others. I think it was Deep Yellow and um, uh, Boss Resources. I think it was. Um, but you know they've they've tripled and gone further since I since I sold out of them. So um, you know quite frustrating. Um, but you know that's just that's just the way it goes sometimes. Um, and look, I think structurally we're at a sort of a you know still at the reasonably early stages of a long-term bull market for for uranium and a lot of that just depends on how the politics of all this um net zero stuff plays out i mean you know it's on the front pages just about every day and the political ramifications of what do we need to do to get to you know net zero by 2050 the reality is that you probably need to look at nuclear if you want to have a reliable baseload um energy source instead of Putting all your chips on on renewables and and uh, storage technology in order to um, make sure that you know that intermittent supply is is stored somewhere. And I just I, I think countries are running a massive risk by crossing their fingers and hoping that technology will do the job. Often it does, but um, you know it's a huge gamble to say that we're going to get towards net zero with technologies that ha- haven't been uh, developed yet. So and this is why nuclear is becoming a greater part of the conversation because I think it's dawning on people. And, you know, two years ago when I was talking about uranium, this conversation was nowhere near being had. I mean, it was all, all, all the talk was, um, you know, nuclear power plants that take too long to build by the time you make the decision, um, the technology, the renewable technology will be there anyway, so they're going to be obsolete. But I think more and more, um, you know, that's getting a decent part of the conversation. So, if if the trend continues that way, then I, I think you know uranium um, companies will still you know they'll they'll still attract attract capital because there's just a structural supply deficit if we do go into a, an age where there's going to be greater demand for uranium down the track. Yeah, I sort of missed the boat on that. I remember a couple of years ago speaking to Jim Rogers. And I said this is a sort of classic Jim Rogers type play. You know, where you get an industry that's just been hammered for so long and everybody is just being ground to dust. Um, but well, it was, it was, it never, was, sorry, I was just going to never, the uranium price itself never really signaled, uh, anything as such as it was the market running ahead of the, it was a, I was going to say it was near, uh, greater than 10 year bear market. I mean, all those uranium stocks run. And I remember it back in 2007, there was a massive bull market in uranium stocks. Um, and they peaked in 2007, uh, they they fell sharply. They bounced back up. Then Fukushima happened in 2011, and that just put all the stocks. There was companies going out of business, and then you got to a point where the spot uranium price was, you know, just below the cost of production. And then that's when you had these companies coming out saying, well, "Okay, we're going to start buying at spot and just storing it and and trying to take it off the market." And that, that were the first signs. There was a company called Yellow Cake or something like that. Um, that listed in London back in 2018, I think. Um, and that was the sign for me that, you know, the, the market was starting to turn. Um, but as I said, I just didn't have the patience to, to stick with it, which uh, in hindsight, a bit unfortunate. Well, let's talk a little bit about oil. You are 
caught on to backing oil to go back into an uptrend, I think almost a year ago. I've been skeptical the whole way up and it <laughs> keeps going up. But even I got to the point where there was a, an oil developer slash uh, producer I've followed for a long time. I'm like, this thing it didn't rally alongside oil. I'm like, it's so cheap. I don't want to say you can't go wrong, but there's so limited downside relative to just a, a normal repricing because all the cash flows are just getting bigger and bigger. Like you have to buy it. So even in my case, I wasn't particularly excited by oil. I recommended the stock and, and thus far it's, it's been a good idea. Do you still see that like market, that kind of value that's just sort of long there around? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, the, the long, the thing is if you, if you think, uh, Oil has gone into a you know a longer term structural bull market. Then um, many of the oil producers are still long term good value. I mean they're going to move around. They're going to be volatile from time to time. But I think longer term um, they're really good picks. And if you just look at um, and look when we say oil, there's not a lot of pure oil plays in Australia. Most of them are, are, are gas and and you know in, increasingly LNG. So if you look at Woodside, you know one of the biggest LNG um, or the biggest LNG player in the world, and after it's um, uh, I guess merger with BHP's oil and gas assets. Assets. It's one of the largest independent producers in the world. It will be once that deal goes through. Woodside peaked in two thousand and eight and has been in a bear market ever since. Um, you know, its share price hit nineteen eighteen dollars um, just a few months ago, and now it's around twenty three. And it's sort of it looks like it might be starting to turn around. So if you take this longer term view that it's in a structural energy or oils in a structural bull market, um, you know, then I think this is this is early days for for the trend. Another one is uh, Origin Energy, which has got um, uh, exposure um, to the LN Australia Australasian LNG plant um, in Gladstone in Queensland. So one of the largest um, LNG export um, projects in, in Australia. I mean, you know, it generates a huge amount of free cash flow from that business, but because it also has a coal-fired power plant and, and um, gas uh, um, stations, the market has marked that company down completely. And I think this is another example of where you're getting, getting good value from that, from those, those mispricings. Um, so Actually, yeah, I should I, say, I, I sent your report on Origin to a mate of mine and he acted on it and he, he loves to remind me <laughs> how well it's doing. <laughs> yeah, very good. And and it's and you know we're recording this on on Monday uh, the twenty fifth, and it had an announcement out today. It's uh, sold ten percent of its um, stake in that in that project, probably taking advantage of the, you know, the surge of interest in LNG and LNG prices. Uh, sold it for for two billion dollars, getting a bit of cash flow in. Probably can pay down some debt, reinvest in some other areas, and the markets like that. Um, deal as well. It's up, you know, two or three percent today. So, look, I think you know, there's just plenty of of opportunities out there. And I think one of the the things that maybe people might have got wrong in this whole trend to to renewable energy, which no doubt is happening. You know, there's so much capital going into renewable energy around the world that you know these forms of energy are going to develop in the in the coming years. It's just going to take a lot longer than what um, people expect. But my view has always been that this energy transition happens with fossil fuels at very, very high prices, not at very, very low prices. Because in order to um, uh, encourage and make renewable energy as economic as it should be, 
you're going to need fossil fuels to be at, at, at higher prices. So, um, you know, I, I think this is a long-term structural bull market that we're in. Well, let's talk a little bit about a theme you're tracking now, which is, and it's something I'm highly conscious of too, because on one on outlook, one one hand, we have a very positive outlook for Australia because we're a commodity-based country with lots of demand for commodities. On the other hand, the biggest buyer of commodities, China, is trying to do everything they can to get rid of us, and you call it the China divorce. Do you want to just touch a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's been happening, um, you know, since 2019, 2020, uh, and especially since, you know, the whole COVID stuff's gone on and Australia's tried to call out China and um, launch an investigation into the origins of, you know, the virus from Wuhan, all that sort of stuff. And initially, you know, everyone said, oh, you know, it's conspiracy theory talking about it being being released or an accidental release. It came from a wet market. And, of course, you know, um, a couple of months later or however long it was, six months later, that conspiracy theory became more mainstream theory and everyone understood it. You know, there was a fair chance that there was an accidental release. So China didn't like the fact that we were highlighting that, um, talking about it. So they've put on, you know, plenty of trade restrictions on things like beef and wine and coal was probably the most obvious one. Um, but one thing they couldn't do, obviously, is iron ore because they need our iron ore for steel production. And what happened around that time in, in January 2019 Vale, which is a Brazilian iron ore miner, and at the time the largest iron ore miner in the world, had a, a massive tailings dam um, uh, tragedy, and it took out 80 million tonnes of, um, of iron ore from the market. So that was bullish for Aussie iron ore, iron ore miners. It was bullish for the price, uh, and it took Vale out for years, and they've only just started to, um, to start increasing their, their production back to former levels now, and I think by the end of next year, they're going to be once again the highest iron ore producer in the world. So the sort of story with with um, China and, and Australia is, you know, you bring in the property market and what's been going on in China over the past couple of months. They're deliberately trying to slow their property market because they realise that it's a source down the track. If they let it keep going, it's a source of great instability, and probably. You know, China's a really complex country to understand, and I don't pretend to understand it. But there's one thing that you can understand and is one of the motivating or driving motivating factors of their leadership is that they want to maintain social stability. And if, if that's a threat, then that is something they will do any, anything to try to stop, you know, st- social instability, because that's the greatest threat to their um, running of the country. So this sort of property bubble that they could see was getting out of hand. Um, back last year, they had this thing called the three red lines policy, where they effectively banned leverage of certain um, over certain levels and property companies had to cut back, which means less construction um, and all the all the sorts of you know commodities that got used in that. And iron ore was the, the main one. So when you talk about, you know, there's a lot of good things happening for Australia in terms of commodities, I think you need to sort of separate the commodities and say, okay, what's the supply and demand um, situation for copper and aluminium and nickel versus what is it for you know, iron ore, for example. And I think, um, and this is what one of the main parts of the, the thesis is that iron ore miners are in in a, in a bit of trouble in terms of, I don't think the bull market in iron ore continues for, for some time now because you've got the property market, which is, which is clearly being, they're putting the brakes on that. So that's going to have an effect on demand. And then you've got um, Vale, which is 
the you know the it's been sidelined for so long coming back into the market with additional supply. And then if you look further down the track, the Chinese are trying to develop that massive Simondo mine in um, in Africa, which will be the largest iron ore mine in the world. And I think that's due to come online around 2025, 26. So it's some time into the future. But, you know, it, the, the, the benefit to Australia just from that iron ore boom last year, um, I did the numbers up until I think it was July of this year, we generated $175 billion in revenue in the year to July this year, just from iron ore. And if you go back 12 months ago, the it was 75 billion. So we had this massive boost from, from this iron ore boom um, that papered over a lot of the cracks that would have been evident, you know, based on our COVID shutdown and all that sort of stuff. It allowed the government to borrow uh, a lot. It allowed the government to you know, provide all this support to, to shut our economy down. And it doesn't feel like we're all that affected by it, right? We're sort of opening back up now and it feels mm. like it's just business as usual. But I think, you know, the, the iron ore boom had a lot to do with that. And my view is in the next few years, that's that's not going to be there. And iron ore price is still pretty high. Like it's not as if they've come back down to, to more average levels, which you'd probably put it around maybe 75, 80 bucks US dollars per tonne. Um, well, so I, just, I was just thinking the other day, actually, after 2008, China did the big stimulus and that sent Australia back up. So the downturn of the GSC wasn't that harsh in Australia either. So oh, exactly. We've sort of continually bumbled our way to prosperity in a way. It's quite strange. But well, what, one of the main differences in, in, in post-2008 from, let's say, 2009 through to 2010, the RBA tried to offset the the stimulus from that big terms of trade boost by raising interest rates. Um, so, off top, mate, I can't remember the numbers, but you know, interest rates got to a peak of around four point seven five percent. I think it was in maybe late two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, something like that. So, the the offset for the iron ore slash terms of trade stimulus was higher interest rates. This year, we've had a massive uh, terms of trade iron ore stimulus along with fiscal stimulus, along with monetary stimulus and the Reserve Bank buying bonds, I mean, you know, what, what more stimulus can you get? Like it's, so we've, we've sailed through it very well, but we've thrown the kitchen sink at it as well. So, um, and that's why, you know, I sort of look at this, this China divorce and I don't think it's going to affect all commodities evenly. I think, you know, you really need to look at your separate markets and your supply demand drivers, but uh, iron ore, which is clearly the most important for the Australian economy, uh, to me, that's that's going to struggle in the years ahead. And I think you then got to flow through and say, well, what's what's the ramifications? And the market at the moment is saying, well, you know, we think interest rates are going to go um, up more than what the RBA is telling us. And my, and, and I sometimes feel uncomfortable saying this, but I think the RBA is right. I think interest rates in Australia are going to stay low for a lot longer than what the market is starting to price in at the moment. I think the market's starting to think that we're going to get higher interest rates starting from next year, whereas the RBA is continually telling uh, the market, no, no, they're going to be, you know, well, he pretty much said 2024. He came out directly and said, which he, you don't often see that. He said, mm. why are you doing this? Well, it, it's not going to happen. Well, um, it's interesting. You know, often the market's, You'd, you'd back the market over the RBA, but you know, at this point, I'm I'm, I'm thinking the well. The, the, the thing about right. that too is that he has the power to keep it there. He just he's got yeah, a absolutely. printing press, and so it's uh, interesting. Uh, I wanted to touch finally on one topic dear to your heart, one I've been following all year, and that's uh, gold stocks. Again, uh, 
you could say there's value there. Um, a lot of them are cashed up. They're making good margins, but they've lost their mojo, if you like. I can't put it in yeah, the market. They don't not have the though, momentum anymore that they had in previous years. Yep. Why? Why is the market not picking them up, if you like? Well, I mean, look, the, the I guess the most obvious answer is that uh, the market, I suppose, is pricing in an improving post-COVID economy, which means, so the way I look at gold is that it is most sensitive to real interest rates. So a real interest rate is you've got your nominal interest rates minus inflation, uh, which gives you real interest rates. So at the moment, real interest rates are, are negative and they've been negative for a long time, but the, the, um They've been, they've been less negative in, in the last sort of, you know, probably 12 months. And, and that's correlated to gold being in a, you call it a bear market, maybe a, a cyclical bear market, or you could call it a long-term consolidation after its big run up to all-time highs in August last year. Um, and and until, until you get some sort of catalyst that sort of says, well, maybe the, the global economy isn't recovering um, in, the, in the way people think and, and there's going to be a need for continued negative real interest rates, then I don't think capital is going to flow back into gold. But in my view, it will happen. Um, the amount of debt in the global economy is just, you know, it's just got to insane levels and you cannot, when debt is that large, you, you can't really have a global economy existing with positive real interest rates. It's just, it's it's going to slow it back down again. So any attempt by the Fed to tighten or taper or whatever you want to call it, and if that if the market then goes along with that and starts to reprice um, uh, in interest rates and put it into positive territory, that's going to be short-term negative for gold, but it's also going to be negative for the ongoing expansion of the global economy. And if you if you look at the the only way to get rid of a huge level of debt is to run deeply negative real interest rates for years on end, and then that will erode the value of that huge pile of nominal debt. Mm. Um, it's the only way it can be done, which is why I'm, I'm still you know, bullish on gold longer term. And I think if gold does break out and when it does break out, it will go to all-time highs again and it'll go a lot higher. Um, it's just a matter of being patient, and I probably don't want to make the same mistake as I made with uranium last time. So I'll, con- <laughs> I'll continue to be patient. I, I'll tell you an interesting comment. Actually, just last week we had a guy called Tim Davies on, and and he he was an advocate for Bitcoin. We didn't go deep into that, but he one reason he deferred against gold, if you like, was that he felt there was too much paper gold out there relative to the physical, which is something you used to write about years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really and good point. it's true that you can't necessarily trust the gold price because there's so many derivatives against it really doesn't measure physical trade of gold, does it? Not at all. Um, but you can say that for just about any uh, commodity out there at the moment. Um, you know, the, the way the modern financial system works is there's huge derivatives market surrounding all commodities. I mean, if you look at the amount of oil, Commodities trade, uh, sorry, oil derivatives traded. Um, it's huge compared to the the supply. You know, oh, sorry, the physical um, trade in oil. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that until financial participants decide that it's time to buy gold, it doesn't matter how much physical gold is being accumulated. Um, but at some point, when when the, the the correlations with negative real interest rates kick in and gold starts to move, that's when the paper gold market will be positive for gold because it'll just be a, a huge torrent going into. Um, I mean, it's funny you yeah. talk about it because one reason I mentioned earlier, I've been skeptical on oil. One reason is there's a few guys I've got it where they 
where I did used to follow oil quite closely and you sort of look at refiners and their margins and what they're doing and sort of the physical business of oil. And it didn't ever look that bullish to me, but the futures market keeps going on and up and up. Yep. And, you know, some other stuff I've read, you know, a lot of it's controlled by algos and all that sort of thing. And you, you just, I really do wonder about that price signal these days. Mm. So anyway, it makes me mistrustful of, of everything. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's good sometimes, but then sometimes you've just got to, you look, you look at the, um, you know, you look at the charts and you, and you can see something moving. Um, and often it's not like, I don't try not to sort of think too much. What do I think? But I sort of, you create a, um, create a narrative, make sure there's value there. And then you sort of say, well, this is what I think. Does the market agree with that? And, and, and if you, if you can sort of, um, tell yourself a story about what you think the market will agree with as well, and you can see that happening, then, that's when that's when it's you know you're going to make good money. If you're sitting over here by yourself with an idea that the market doesn't agree with, you're never going to make money, whether that that's right or wrong. Absolutely, and and sometimes too, uh, I find myself you know I will have that idea, and and you do have to just make sure that it's not a little bit too far away, because otherwise you just get sort of as you say you just stagnate. Um, well, too, too early is being wrong, right? It's the same thing. Yeah, and well, and we mentioned Jim, uh, Jim Rogers earlier. And, I mean, for years he talked about agriculture, right, that, that, that it was so cheap it had to go up. Yep. But it's only now, literally I heard him talk about it 10 years ago, it's only now that it's it's really starting to rumble. And it's like, you now if you're multi, multi-millionaire like he is, you probably can park your money there for 10 years and, and wait. But Well, to be honest, I mean, you know, Jim might have had, what, Three percent of his portfolio in there, and was talking about how cheap it was. So he's got yeah. other things on the boil as well, you know. And then absolutely, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so I mean, if you've got your own sort of strategy as such, and you're happy to do it, that can work. But yeah, um, uh, it's interesting. You can so often you'll you'll look at something and go, you know, I see this, but maybe somebody, you know, the market doesn't, and you know, there's no reason to say I'm even right. So yeah, uh, and and, that, and that's that's you know, part of good- the dance of the market, isn't it? Exactly, and it's a good, and it's one of the main reasons why I, I'd like to, you know, consult the charts because if I have an idea about something and I look at a chart and it's sort of going down, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm clearly not right about this, or I'm too early, or I'm missing something. Um, whereas if you have a, a theory about something and you look at a number of different stocks, stocks in the sector, and they're all starting to to move up, or they're all, you can you can interpret that chart to be confirming your ideas and you can say to yourself, well, I'm, I think I'm onto something here. You know, I might do a bit more digging on this or I might take some, you know, start recommending one or two positions or, or something like that. So it's all about coming up with an idea and then and then seeing whether the market agrees with it because ultimately that's what you need. And so often, you know, a sector will run as a pack basically. Like last year it was yeah. lithium and uh, this year it's been uranium. and Exactly. Uh, so the market will signal it in, in that way. All right, so you, uh, we talked a little bit about trying to divorce. You're doing a report on that. Is that available yet? Can we link to it in the box? It is available. I think that came out uh, last week um, or only very recently, so there's a fair bit of material there for anyone who's interested. We can link out to that for sure. Okay, great. All right, so as far as you're concerned, I guess in a way it's as business as usual for you. You're just looking for those undervalued contrarian ideas um we've got what uh two more issues rest of the year but um there's still plenty of opportunity out there 
Well, I wouldn't say there's plenty of opportunity. I think certainly at the start of the year, I was, I was finding a lot more than what I'm finding now. Um, I remember in the August monthly issue, I remember writing, you know, that there was no real stocks out there that I was I was keen on. And I actually wrote that, you know, it's probably time to get more defensive and, um, you know, accumulate the gold miners that are looking cheap and um, maybe allocate a little bit to cash, buy some US dollars, just to sort of defensive up the portfolio a little bit. Um, and since then, we've had a correction. We've bounced back a little bit. My feeling is we still could be going a little bit lower. Um, and look, it's really a matter of looking for those individual uh, stocks that have been knocked around and, and, are, and are showing good value. And you know, you all, if you look hard enough, you can always find them. Um, I just think that now is a little bit harder to find those those stories than what it was at the start of the year. Yeah, fair enough. Like, I, I mean, I agree. Like, it's. Um... I mean, relative to last year as well. I mean, I mean yeah, last year was special, but you know, this year's been a, a, a tougher market uh, for uh, lots of ideas. But there's been certainly there's always there's always uh, uh, ones out there. You've just got exactly to, just got to yeah. dig them out. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, and we'll do it again. No and uh, again, if you're watching, listening, uh, oh, I've also got to say, Belvedere reminded me, uh, thumbs up and like the podcast and all that sort of stuff to to uh, let it be known it's out there and if you want to check out Greg's latest report we'll get uh, the link uh, in the uh, box below the video and you can check it out and again uh, I read Greg's report every month he's got some great ideas and and uh, um, fully endorsed from me so thank you for coming on no worries thanks mate thanks for having us